Hello and welcome to this, the second episode of Bigger, Faster, Better, a podcast box set from Energy Voice in paid partnership with Womble Bond Dickinson, which wants to find out which countries are developing the most sustainable, innovative and scalable energy solutions. What we can all learn from each other and, well, who's doing it bigger, faster and indeed better. Over the course of five episodes, we're going to take a look at how the UK is shaping up in its race to cut emissions and move towards net zero, and how this compares with, with other countries moving towards similar ends. My name is Ed Reed. I'm an editor here at Energy Voice, where we are leading the global energy conversation. And I'm delighted to welcome Richard Coburn, partner in Womble Bond Dickinson's Energy and Natural Resources Group. Joining us from Abu Dhabi is uh, Dr. Alex Richel, head of technology at Mazda. Over the course of the Bigger, Faster, Better series, we're going to look at various ways and how the energy transition is working out. And this second episode aims to look at hydrogen, how it has a part to play and how the UK and the UAE may work to develop this technology. The UK singled out hydrogen as point two of its 10-point plan, the foundational document for how the country will reach net zero. The goal has been set to reach five gigawatts of low-carbon hydrogen by 2030, with the government setting out a variety of ways to support this goal. In addition to discussions around production, there's also some work going into how we're going to consume it. There's talk of blending hydrogen into natural gas networks as a first step, and also around using hydrogen to decarbonize heavy industry. Abu Dhabi, meanwhile, has made progress in developing production, both in terms of blue hydrogen from ADNOC and with Mazda, which I believe has now got three hydrogen plans it's working on. Crucially, Abu Dhabi has already exported a, uh, a blue ammonia cargo to Japan in, in uh, mid-2021, which I think shows some really interesting ways in how a future trade may play out and maybe gives some indicators about how Abu Dhabi's natural resource model is evolving. Richard, I'm going to start with you. We've had Paris, we've had Glasgow, and they've given broad regulatory direction for countries around the world. But how important do you think this is for the UK? And, and I suppose what's the impact of those commitments to the UK's hydrogen plans? Yeah, they're very important because they, they set the agenda, they set a direction of travel. And it's worth just pausing and taking a moment to say, well, what actually came out in respect of hydrogen from COP26 in Glasgow? Uh, just very high level terms. There were a number of national commitments to hydrogen announced during the course of COP26. Hydrogen was named as one of the five so-called breakthroughs, which were key actions aimed at reducing 50% of emissions. And the aim was to try and make hydrogen an affordable fuel by, by 2030. Uh, there was also a hydrogen toolbox issued, and that was basically set out by the World Economic Forum and the International Renewable Energy Agency to say, look, you know, if you are developing a hydrogen system in your country, here are some of the roadmaps that you could possibly use. Now, Alongside COP26, it didn't get a lot of attention, but there was also a hydrogen transition summit. And that was a collection of different countries saying, if we are going to have commercially viable hydrogen plans in individual states, then what are the key components of those? And in short, they recommended showing that there was viable demand, that there was a stable regulatory framework, that there was good government financial support, and there was an element of international cooperation. So taking a step back, that paints a general picture of what came out of COP26. In the UK, what did that mean? Well, the UK was already quite far along the track of introducing a hydrogen strategy. It introduced a strategy in April of uh, 2021, and that was backed up by its net zero strategy uh, just before COP26, actually. 
That set out what the regulatory framework might look like. Uh, we're expecting to get that finalised during 2022. Also, the government set out what the various government funds might be, both in terms of capital support and revenue support, in terms of taking forward UK hydrogen projects. And internationally, the UK said, OK, well, we're taking part in various of the international collaborative initiatives, like the International Hydrogen Energy Mysterial Meeting. So... In the UK, I would say that COP26 affirmed the UK approach, but it also gave it an extra nudge and underlined the urgency of developing the regime quickly, as I'm sure possibly is happening in the UAE. Alex, the UAE set out its plans to uh, to reach net zero by 2050, and I think you know significantly it did that on you know around the time of uh, of COP26, didn't it? And 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 clearly looking ahead, COP is it 28 is going to be in in Abu Dhabi in a couple of years' time. So, I mean, what extent do you think this goes to sort of support uh, local hydrogen projects? Indeed, the uh, the COPs um, are driving events for. Uh, transition of the energy sector and uh, a great opportunity to introduce hydrogen into the energy mix. Uh, the net zero target is clearly ambitious, but it's clearly an opportunity to decarbonize now sectors that previously were thought to be very difficult to decarbonize. In the UAE, you may be aware that uh, uh, we have um, a quite significant heavy industry and we also have a lot of transportation, both on the road and also uh, by ship and by air. Uh, so all these sectors are very, very hard to decarbonize by electrification or by energy efficiency means or by, uh, by fuel switching other than introducing a new type of um, fuels that are derived from hydrogen. So that, that gives a, a really good opportunity to make that uh, transition cost effectively. And uh, well, in the UE, we have uh, different ways to produce hydrogen. So um, that can be either the green route or the, the blue route, and then maybe even others, because we also have nuclear facilities, so we could even produce it there with uh, nuclear energy. In, in the end, it's all decarbonized hydrogen, and it's all helping to address climate change. Uh, so I, I, I think for the UE, this um, net um, uh, carbon goal by 2050 will make it possible to introduce hydrogen and to, to scale up and ramp up the production uh, so that we can actually achieve that goal. Richard, coming back to you, I mean, I think I think Alex has, has brought up a really interesting point there about about the challenges of electrification and, and, and how, how difficult it is, I suppose, to go all the way to reach net zero through electrification alone. We're here, we're talking about hydrogen. Both of you guys are, are clearly hydrogen fans. What do you, what do you think uh, the role of, of hydrogen is in terms of being a, a kind of a counterweight or an addition to, to electrification in the UK? Alex has already touched on a few of the main uses of hydrogen. And, and one of the uses, which I think is going to be particularly helpful for hydrogen, is it's going to be a storage medium. So obviously, as we move towards a cleaner energy regime, then there is an element of trying to make sure it's a stable supply. And particularly when you're looking at renewables, you are heavily dependent, obviously, on when the wind blows or when the sun shines, for example. So hydrogen as a storage facility is going to be helpful. Also, when you come to, you mentioned in your, in your opening words, Ed, in the UK, hydrogen is going to be used a lot for decarbonisation. Uh, and it's also going to be used in a heating scenario as well uh, for blending into 
into networks, existing gas networks. So again, having hydrogen out there as a dependable resource is going to be very important, both when it comes to industrial players fuel switching away from fossil fuel to hydrogen, but also if you are contemplating putting it into your regular day-to-day heating of buildings, then you're going to have to know it's reliable. So it has that element of reliability and stability in short, is I guess the, the simple answer to your question. Sure, sure, sure. And I, I suppose, you know, looking at those ways of, of, of making hydrogen, you know, we've got blue, we've got green, we've got, uh, I mean, I think, is it is nuclear pink? I can, I, I always find it quite hard to uh, to remember the uh, the various colours of the of the hydrogen rainbow. And I think this week, I think I might have been writing something about turquoise hydrogen. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, clearly this is, this is an area where, you know, there are technological developments kind of going on. But also at the same time, you know, prices are still pretty high. Staying with you, Richard, what do you, what kind of future do you see for bringing those costs down? And I, which I suppose is, is going to be critical to allow hydrogen to reach any kind of scale to, to help drive that kind of decarbonisation move. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point, Ed, and it's super important in terms of how quickly we can roll out, particularly towards green hydrogen, because that's what everyone wants to get to ultimately. It's worth just taking a moment to say, well, everyone talks about the costs, but, but, but what are they actually? So the IEA looked at this fairly recently and established that if you look at grey hydrogen, now that's hydrogen produced from natural gas and the carbon emissions are not abated, they're not captured and, and, and stored away, then the cost can range from about half a dollar per kilogram to $1.7 per kilogram. You then step up to blue hydrogen, and that is, again, hydrogen from natural gas, but the emissions are captured through carbon capture and storage primarily. The cost for that jumps a bit. It can be anywhere between $1 per kilogram and and $2 per kilogram. And then when you get to green hydrogen, so that's primarily hydrogen produced by electrolysis, i.e. from renewable sources, the cost jumps again up to anywhere between $3 and $8 per kilogram. So you can see straight away there's a big price differential between green and both blue and grey. That said, The IEA also remarked that it reckoned that green hydrogen might come down to cost parity with blue hydrogen by about 2030 and with grey hydrogen certainly by 2050. So the point is, it's going to be 2030 until we can get green hydrogen being as cost effective as blue hydrogen projects. In my book, that means you cannot go straight to green hydrogen. You're trying to create a market, you're trying to create demand, you're trying to create viable business models and cost, whether we like it or not, is an important part of that. So we need to make good use of blue hydrogen and Alex has talked about that in his part of the world. In particular, we need to get demand going and the way that we get demand going and the way we're doing it in the UK is by focusing primarily on clusters. And we're looking at building clusters, carbon capture clusters, roundabout industrial and commercial areas where there's existing demand and where hydrogen is either being produced or could be produced to serve those customers. That primarily is going to be blue hydrogen. The hydrogen goes into the the transportation storage network for carbon capture and it gets pushed out into the North Sea and stored. Now what that does is it gets the market going quickly and the, the quicker we can get that market going, the more we can bring the cost of hydrogen projects down and the more quickly we can uh, get green hydrogen costs to come down as well. So in my book, in line with the UK hydrogen strategy, there's a role for both blue and green in developing the hydrogen market. 
Alex, coming to you. Obviously, Mazda is 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 as as you've you you, you told me uh, when we spoke in in Abu Dhabi a couple of weeks ago. Really, just focused on on that kind of green hydrogen. And I think you know, obviously, Richard, as as Richard said, you know, there there is that gas uh, differential. But that said, you know, looking at my recent gas bill, gas is not a not a not a particularly cheap resource. Hearing some of the, the the solar generation numbers coming out of particularly places like Abu Dhabi, like Saudi Arabia, I suppose that's a partic- an increasingly attractive power generation source. How how do you think green kind of makes its place in that in that rainbow of hydrogens? I think uh, it's a rainbow, and there is a space for all the colors, and that makes it actually beautiful to have more color than just one. Especially at the beginning, I think there will be a, a space for all these different versions. In the end, chemically speaking, it's all the same. It's just uh, the, the, the way of producing is different. So our company where I work for Master, uh, we are focusing uh, clearly on the green pathway, using the renewable uh, power plants to produce the electricity without uh, CO2 emissions and use that electricity and then to run an electrolyzer to uh, split the water into hydrogen and oxygen. Now, I believe uh, this um, technology of electrolyzers, it's well known and um, it's not something kind of R&D type of thing. So there's a good track record on electrolyzers that have been used for many uh, decades in, uh, in the chemical industries. However, in that volume which is needed now to make a, a significant impact on the energy transition, and also using this coupled with uh, renewable power plants, which are in most cases not having a, a stable output uh, over 24 hours. So they have, there's a variability. So this creates new challenges. And uh, so they're, they're, therefore these electrolyzers, they need to be uh, um, optimized for that purpose and also need to be produced in these massive volumes to allow that uh, volume production of hydrogen uh, in order to replace uh, natural gas. Uh, So this is a a huge effort that uh, the global industry needs to undertake. So that's why I believe the current um, cost of equipment is not really relevant for when we say our target is 2030. I think in 2030, this will, the industry will look very different. The manufacturers, new companies will come up. And then with the scaling up of the production, the costs will come down, efficiencies, which are still not that great, will be improved. And all this together, uh, also, uh, the, the familiarity of the industry sector, the utilities with this new type of equipment, the familiarity of financial institutions with this kind of projects. So this will also, all, all will contribute to uh, reduce the cost. And I expect to see a similar cost curve as other industries um, like the, the photovoltaic industry or the wind industry, they, they all experienced this um, very significant cost um, improvements in the first decade after this um, technology was basically introduced into the market in a significant scale. So I, I expect to see the same in the in, in, for green hydrogen. And then I think this will give us a, a really good, a good solution. Uh, to decarbonize these uh, many industry sectors that we need to decarbonize. 
really interesting hear Alex say that. And uh, the question that popped into my head was, how quickly, Alex, do you see the supply chain developing for hydrogen? Because uh, one of the issues that we see, one of the real life issues that we see in green hydrogen projects that we're involved in in the UK is the availability of, of kit, particularly electrolyzers, and the requirement to order the kit a long time in advance. And that is having a significant impact on planning and when commercial decisions are made about whether to proceed with the project. I don't know if that's something that we're seeing just in the UK or if that's something that you're seeing globally. No, I, I think we see the same. And because we are preparing a, a pipeline of hydrogen projects as we speak, and we also are in dialogue with the manufacturers. So we see uh, that the current manufacturing capacity is uh, not enough to cater for that upcoming demand, you know, and to, to, to meet the goals that are given by various governments now in terms of hydrogen use. So right now there is a shortage in the supply of the equipment and that is um, maybe also leading to relatively high cost. I, I think this is a temporary um, uh, situation. There was just the conference that Ed mentioned, the Abu Dhabi Sustainability Week, a few weeks back. And uh, we saw so many companies that we never uh, thought that they would produce or ever want to produce electrolyzers. And so we knew those companies from completely different products. And they approached us uh, with their plans to uh, invest into hydrogen electrolyzer production. And these are very uh, well-known and uh, large companies that um, told us that those plans. So and put all this together, I, I think uh, in, in five years from today, um, I think this um, situation as we, we see it now will probably disappear. Mm. Interesting, thank you. Fantastic. I think we're going to take a, sh a short break at this point uh, and we'll, we'll come back in a moment. Womble Bond Dickinson is a transatlantic law firm with a keen focus on the energy sector. As part of its Rebuild Britain campaign, Womble Bond Dickinson is looking at the energy transition and its role in the UK achieving its net zero ambitions. The Bigger, Faster, Better podcast series will explore how the UK performs in comparison to other countries in key renewable technologies. So, Richard, I mean, I think in the UK, it, it feels like the UK government is, is really taking steps to help drive the, the shift into hydrogen. And you, you mentioned uh, earlier on some of the uh, some of the funds and, and, and the sort of the, the the monetary and you know support that's coming from a, a sort of fairly high level. How do you think that's going to play out in terms of, of of helping drive progress in the sector? People are pretty confident it's going to work well, and and the reason I say that is that the government has looked at what happened in particularly offshore wind in the UK, and it put in place particular models and and a revenue support scheme called Contract for Difference, which basically helps to stabilise the revenue from the offshore wind farm, and that's worked extremely successfully. There's a lot of offshore wind off the coast of the UK now. It's growing very rapidly. There was a recent announcement on the Scottish offshore wind leases, which could lead to up to 25 gigawatts of extra offshore wind. And importantly, the cost of the projects came down by something like 70% over 10 years or something like that. So the government has seen that as a success. 
it's applying the same approach to carbon capture in the UK. And in the UK, over a period of years, uh, various governments have had a go at getting carbon capture off the ground and didn't manage to do that. What's happening now is they've looked at offshore and they thought, okay, that worked quite well. So they've set up a, a regulatory model for carbon capture. They've introduced a revenue support system. There, there are funds offering capital support as well. And that's received a very warm welcome in the industry. There was a lot of interest in the recent so-called cluster sequencing process whereby various industrial clusters around the UK bid to be on the government's preferred track to get funding. And the government is looking at hydrogen and saying, okay, well, let's go down the same track. So the consultation it issued in 2021, looking at what the hydrogen business model might look like, was very similar to what we see in carbon capture. Uh, so I think there's a very strong degree of confidence that it, that it will work. And we do have some pretty ambitious targets to reach. You mentioned right at the outset that uh, we're looking in the UK to get up to five gigawatts of low carbon hydrogen production by 2030. And uh, we, we've got to get, get moving quickly if we're going to hit that target. And Alex, I mean, I suppose in many ways, I, I, there, are, there are sort of similarities, aren't there, in, in Abu Dhabi? I mean, I, I think, you know, with the... You know, backed by Mubadala and and with the entry of of, of Taka and Adnock, I mean, really sort of coming in to sort of shore up Mazda's uh, shareholder structure. I mean, what what impact do you think that that having those those sort of three heavyweight companies has on your green hydrogen plans? We expect a very positive impact. Um, uh, that was actually the driver for um, putting those heavyweights together to really establish a kind of a powerhouse here in uh, in Abu Dhabi, whereby the uh, m- most powerful uh, companies in energy space work together. And uh, there are a lot of synergies that we can uh, capture, especially when it comes to hydrogen, especially when it comes to green hydrogen. So green hydrogen and you need basically two elements to, to work together. The one element is the renewable component to get the carbon-free electricity, and Master has been a champion on that and uh, has been developing this very large-scale projects at record low prices. And then you have a company like Adnok coming uh, with a, a wealth of experience in oil and gas and a global leader in, uh, in producing um, um, hydrocarbons uh, with a very low carbon intensity, actually one of the lowest in the world. So combining this will allow to leverage this uh, this uh, wealth of experience and know-how uh, because we need both. You know, you need the electric side of the picture and you need then the chemical side of the picture, so basically the processing uh, part of it. Hydrogen generation uh, doesn't end up often with the hydrogen gas from the electrolyzer, so you need to compress it, you need to sometimes liquefy it, sometimes you need to even convert it into a different chemical in order to make it possible to ship over larger distances like ammonia or methanol or other forms. And that's why you need a very strong chemical industry or petrochemical industry base. So fortunately, we have everything here in the country and uh, we have both the 
the experience with renewables and we have the renewable resource and we have the knowledge from the oil and gas how to deal with fuels and how to export those fuels and how to bunker it. And so this new configuration of the shareholders of master, this, this will make everything under one house. So we believe that this will help us tremendously in delivering the green hydrogen at very low and very attractive prices. And, and I suppose, you know, there's, there's a really interesting question there, isn't there, about, about where hydrogen should be produced. I mean, I think, you know, obviously Abu Dhabi has a, has a sort of a long history of, of exporting uh, around the world. And I think it, it feels in a way that there's a, a clear potential for this to continue. And as I mentioned, I think in my introduction, Adnoc exporting, I think it was a blue ammonia cargo to uh, to, to Japan in, in, in August last year. But I suppose on the other hand, you know, Mazda, you have projects around the world, uh, including offshore wind in the UK. So I suppose you have, you know, as, as, as Mazda, you have the potential to produce hydrogen in a number of different places. Do you think there's scope for you to have both domestic hydrogen production, maybe to decarbonize uh, local industry and also perhaps hydrogen production in the UK or elsewhere to, to, to meet other countries' hydrogen needs? I mean, how, how do you sort of come to some sort of reckoning on, on how, to, how to balance up that sort of local versus export model? Well, definitely the first thing for us is to take advantage of the great domestic position that we have because we have everything in place in our hometown. So it would be, it's a natural starting point to build up the infrastructure here where we are. We have this, the solar resource. We have the infrastructure, both from the electric system and from the pipeline system to we have the port infrastructure in place we have industry here uh, we have uh, the aviation sector that is very keen uh, on decarbonizing and uh, using decarbonized fuels so uh, it it's a logical starting point to work here in the UAE. Uh, maybe in a second round, we could potentially expand, still uh, staying in the region. Maybe some neighboring countries have similar good conditions to produce green hydrogen. And um, that could be uh, the, the, the first expansion round. When it comes to other places, um, let's say like the UK, I mean, here, what comes to mind is a kind of a partnership um, a work. And that was actually um, recently announced, a kind of a collaboration between the UK and the UAE to work together to establish certain um, gigawatts so, um, in, uh, in, in, in the UK and, uh, and gigawatts of uh, green hydrogen and also blue hydrogen in the UAE. And um, actually, we are in, in, in communication with uh, the key players in the UK. And uh, there, so there could be a, a joint project whereby a UK company uh, co-invests into a hydrogen production here in the UAE. And in turn, the UAE or master co-invests into a, a green hydrogen production in the UK. So in that way, we can serve both markets and... Um, and we learn, you know, both the UK companies and the UAE, we learn about different markets and about the, the, the circumstances and so forth. Richard, I mean, I think, you know, a, a very similar question can be asked to you. I mean, I, it, clearly, 
it feels that, that, that part of the UK's drive to the energy transition is about sort of, I suppose, energy independence. Uh, but there's also, I suppose, there's, there is transportation of products and or knowledge. How do, you, how do you think it's going to work out? Are we obviously the UK currently importing, for instance, LNG? Do you think there's a future where we import hydrogen or do you think that's going to be produced locally? How do, you, how do you think it works? At the moment in the UK, the focus really is on producing it locally and also on the international partnerships that Alex talked about. So recently BP announced a big investment into a hydrogen plant in Rotterdam, for example. So that's them exporting skills to, to another uh, another country. That's not to say there isn't interest in the UK for importing hydrogen. So there's been a pilot recently to have hydrogen manufactured in Australia and shipped to Japan. And that's caused a lot of interest. Uh, people, I think, recognise that it's a pilot project, so there are various issues with it. I, I don't think uh, when the hydrogen is produced in Australia that there's associated carbon capture at the moment. The, the tank that's transporting it is is diesel fueled, etc., etc. But the point is that there is an attempt to establish that kind of hydrogen trade flow, if you like. And I, there's a lot of interest in that in the UK. For example, if you were to look up at uh, Port of Cromarty Firth in the far north of Scotland, they signed up an agreement with a Norwegian outfit for the possible import of green hydrogen from Norway. So it is possible. I, I think, though, that the focus in the UK is very much at the moment on doing it independently within the UK. And that's partly with one eye on energy stability. Uh, it's partly with an eye on the fact that in the UK, we've got around about 30% of Europe's wind capacity We've got about 100 chemical industrial power plants within 30 kilometres of the coast. We've got something like 30 to 50 years worth of carbon emission storage available to us in the North Sea. So there's, an ability, there's, there's a, a thinking that we could be actually big in hydrogen if we make use of all those resources, particularly if we go down the clusters route. Plus also, uh, one mustn't forget that we've got a looming issue in the UK where we've got 130,000 plus people in the oil and gas jobs market in the UK. And as we transition away from fossil fuels, we need to find roles for them. And if we had a strong native hydrogen market, then that could provide anything between 10 and 50,000 jobs, depending on how successful the hydrogen market is in the UK. Sure, sure, sure. And, and I mean, in terms of, you know, these next steps, what do you think the challenges are? What's what's slowing this shift to, to this, uh, you know, the sort of the promised land of hydrogen? In the UK, I would say it's, it's getting it off the ground. And uh, earlier on, I mentioned that one of the key components of a successful hydrogen project is establishing viable, continuing demand for the hydrogen. And that's why in the UK... Primarily at the moment, at least, hydrogen has been developed as an industrial policy. So it's going to be a key part of several of the carbon capture clusters uh, as and when they come into being. We're hoping in the UK to have two up and running by 2025, four by 2030. But also there are already in the UK 50 to 60 uh, current hydrogen projects. A lot of those are very small projects and it's actually quite notable that the majority of those are based in industrial centres. 
Uh, if you look, for example, at a company uh, in the UK called H2 Green, it's a, it's a relatively new green hydrogen company. They've announced recently uh, two projects. Uh, one is a hub in Shoreham Port on the south coast. One is in Inverness in an industrial site. So they're going to places where the demand is. And that's the key to kicking it off in the UK is to get that demand going. And then once we've got the demand going, we can get the market going. And once we get the market going, we can get bigger projects off the ground. And Alex, what do you think? What do you think the challenges are that uh, that you're seeing in uh, in the UAE? Well, it's um, an emerging, a new emerging industry. So um, it's uh, the, the the beginning is always difficult uh, because you know, for example. We need to develop um, a, a clear roadmap, um, you know, that uh, lays out goals for different industry segments. So this is uh, in the works, but until this is really put in place, uh, it's uh, uh, maybe a, a little bit challenging to get the projects on, on the ground. It's also related to um, standards, especially uh, when we talk about the uh, domestic market. If you want to introduce, let's say, hydrogen for transportation mobility, uh, you need to have clear uh, standards in place, how, how these fuels are handled, are stored. And um, the authorities are working on it, but um, it's uh, still a bit early. And then, of course, it's also the the kind of the infrastructure that needs to be put in place, you know, the the, the bunkering facilities and the uh, transportation facility that all costs a lot of money. Uh, and it takes also some time to build that up. Uh, also for the export, if I mean, the UAE is an ideal uh, place to produce um, um, hydrogen very cost effectively and to export it into other markets where there is uh, not so great potential to do that, but still a very high demand for it. But how to ship that hydrogen over to those places, you need um, new forms of infrastructure and of terminals and of uh, logistics management. So this is, it needs all to be uh, developed. And, and so this will take a few years probably until these capacities are put in place. But uh, as I said previously, I think in five years from now, it's probably much easier than, than right now. And uh, just as a sort of a final question, I mean, I think if you, if you had to sort of pick one area, one sort of part of how things are succeeding, I mean, is, is, there, is there one area in which you see Abu Dhabi sort of maybe leading by example in, 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 in one particular area? Well, Abu Dhabi will have the advantage that the, most of the hydrogen is uh, is is you actually consumed nowadays in oil and gas in the refineries, and we have a lot of refineries, so we have a very good starting point. We can gradually uh, replace grey hydrogen with uh, blue or green hydrogen uh, relatively easily. And um, especially now, um, as the prices of natural gas are high, so that's a good opportunity. Um, also related to ammonia production, I think this is something where we can really contribute. Because the industry is in place, we have uh, the largest ammonia industry here in the country. So we can easily switch from grey ammonia to green ammonia. 
And then uh, Master itself, we are launching uh, right now uh, pilot projects to uh, work on uh, sustainable aviation fuel produced from uh, uh, green hydrogen. And that's because we have such a big aviation air sector here with uh, uh, both um, Abu Dhabi and Dubai international airports serving as a, as a hubs for international air traffic. And uh, the airlines made commitments uh, for decarbonization, very significant commitments. And uh, sustainable aviation fuel is uh, basically the only option to achieve those commitments. So they are ideally made out of hydrogen until, of course, the new um, generation of airplanes comes uh, that runs on uh, on pure hydrogen, which is then, of course, the ideal solution. But that will uh, still take some time. And until we have those airplanes in place, I think the sustainable aviation fuel made out of green hydrogen is a very good bridge solution. Fantastic. And, and Richard, what do you think? What do you, if, if, if you had to pick one or two points from the UK about, about sort of the hydrogen policy, what do, you, what do you think that the world should uh, pay attention to? I've said it before in this conversation, the clusters, I think the clusters are critically important to us in terms of getting the hydrogen market off the ground. That There was a Woodmark report recently which touched on the fact that uh, last year there were 200 new carbon capture projects launched globally. I, I, most of which have got hydrogen as an element of part of it. And they noted that around about 50% of those are being done as part of a cluster project, which just confirms to me that that's the quickest way of getting these things off the ground, certainly in our part of the world. I do feel a bit disappointed when I hear Alex talking about how much hydrogen they can produce from solar. And we just don't have that possibility in this part of the world, which is why I talked about wind. So we've got to go for any option we can and clusters seem to be the way forward. What a note to end on. I, I certainly spent a considerable amount of time wishing we had more sun and possibly not quite so much wind. That said, I think that's all we, so the time we have for today. But I think there have been some really interesting points. Both countries clearly interested in driving hydrogen as part of that move to cut emissions. The UK has taken some significant steps in this sector, although I suppose there's still that question of hydrogen versus electrification, which still seems to be playing out to a large extent. Abu Dhabi, meanwhile, has got this vision of hydrogen as the next fuel of export, following its clear and incredible successes in the oil industry. I think there's a real focus on utilisation, which, which seems to be a real key to getting things moving. I think we've mentioned that first cargo of blue ammonia going to Japan, and also the Mazda work on, on green hydrogen going into sustainable aviation fuel. I suppose the, the interesting sort of point of similarity is that both countries are keen to look beyond their own shores. Abu Dhabi clearly working on the, the exports of feedstock and technology, but the UK sees an opportunity, if it gets it right at home, to export those engineering skills around the world to try and meet some of this new era of demand. So with that, uh, I'm going to draw things to a close. Uh, to our listeners, uh, please let us know your thoughts on this topic through the Energy Voice social media channels or by emailing outloud at energyvoice.com. If you want to be part of the conversation and share your story with the energy industry, you can email outloud at energyvoice.com too. While I'm here, I'd love to invite you to also tune in to our regular weekly news episodes. Uh, if this is the first time you're finding Energy Voice Out Loud, you can tap the follow button in your podcast app to get not just every episode of Bigger, Faster, Better, but also our regular weekly podcast, which drops every Friday, in which I and Energy Voice journalists from across the globe explain and put into context the biggest energy news of the week. 
Next up, Bigger Faster Better heads to Denmark to discuss offshore wind. But for this, the second episode of our new podcast series, Bigger Faster Better, I've been Ed Reed. Thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.